0: Hello world, and welcome to the Overtone Warp Zone. This podcast is for people who enjoy games, love music, and want to know more about how their favorite songs work. Each episode will focus on some pieces of music from the video game corpus, and talk about one musical concept found in those pieces. In our first season, we're diving deep into the score of Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. I'm Dan Bergman, and let's get started. Sometimes on this show I have to throw in my personal bias. The Super Nintendo Entertainment System was the best console of all time! Or at least that's what I remember through my nostalgia glasses. Seriously though, some of the greatest characters and worlds really began to be fleshed out on the Super Nintendo, which was also called the SNES, or SNES, and of course, coming from the original Nintendo console, composers had a much more sophisticated palette to use. Speaking of that palette, we've been listening to music by Adolfo Beyes, who remixed the Smash Ultimate theme using Mario Paint Composer. Check out his YouTube channel, which features many Mario Paint remixes, and a link to download Mario Paint Composer in the show notes. There are 34 tracks in Smash Ultimate that are pulled straight from the Super Nintendo, mostly from Street Fighter 2 and F-Zero, with a few from Donkey Kong Country, Super Mario World, Super Castlevania 4, Wings, and The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. Here's the original version of Mute City from F-Zero on the Super Nintendo. The game features two composers, Yumiko Kanki and Naoto Ishida. From what I read, it looked like Yumiko was the composer for this one. Have a listen. 0 and Super Mario World were the launch titles for the Super Famicom, the Japanese equivalent of the Super Nintendo, in November of 1990, and the system was released the following year in North America. Nintendo came late to the 16-bit market, and originally didn't see a need to transition to it since the Nintendo Entertainment System was still performing so well. However, Sega released their Genesis console in 1989, and this started to take a large part of the market share away from Nintendo, who were forced to respond. Nintendo was successful in large part because of their third-party companies that they retained, including Capcom, Konami, Square, Enix, and Tecmo. Through its lifetime, the Super Nintendo would constantly be facing competition from Sega in their edgy hero Sonic, their gory version of Mortal Kombat, which, by the way, spawned the Entertainment Software Rating Board, and the infamous marketing campaign, Sega Does What Nintendon't. do Despite this competition, the Super Nintendo was still unfathomably successful. The first batch of Super Famicoms in Japan, 300,000 in total, were sold out within hours of release. The social disturbance created by the release of the console led the government to ask Nintendo to only release more batches on weekends, and they had to ship at night because of the interest of the Yakuza, which is basically the Japanese Mafia. The success of the system was so incredible that Japan only stopped making them in 2003. That's 2 years after the release of the GameCube, which is two consoles past the Super Nintendo. You might be wondering what kind of improvements the SNES offered over the NES, especially in terms of sound design. Well, fear not, for today's topic is Super Nintendo Entertainment System sound hardware. The Super Nintendo actually had two chips. The SMP, also called SPC700, was a processing core that ran the program to tell the second chip, the DSP, what sounds to make. If you'll remember from our NES sound hardware episode, the NES had five channels for sound output. Two pulse channels, a triangle channel, a noise channel, and a very limited sample channel. The Super Nintendo improved on this by having eight channels, all of which were 16-bit sample channels. This meant that there was no dedicated channels to a particular sound, but any sound could be loaded into any channel. The eight channels had a big impact on sound design as well. Not only could composers include more than three pitched voices in their music, but since they also had the channel real estate, so to speak, they frequently dedicated two channels to sound effects. We didn't discuss this implication before, but if all your channels on the NES were dedicated to making music... That meant that you'd have to steal a channel or two every now and then to provide sound effects, therefore eliminating an instrument from your song. To show you an example of this, here's some audio I recorded from the first level of Super Mario Bros. 3. First from the original game on the NES, and second from the game on the Super Mario All-Stars cartridge for the Super Nintendo. The music is composed, of course, by Koji Kondo. Did you hear how the song disappears in the first one? As far as the samples themselves, the system didn't generate the sounds like the standard channels on the NES did. They were loaded in ahead of time from a sample library. Composers could, in theory, take samples from anywhere. From my research, it sounded like Nintendo had some kind of deal with Roland, a Japanese instrument manufacturer, and their sample libraries would be identical to some of their keyboard models such as the SC-55 and SC-88. However, if a composer wanted a more unique sound, they themselves could invest in a different sample library. It sounds like this was often more effort than was practical for most people. The big issue with samples on the Super Nintendo was the size of the samples. All the sound had to be contained in 64 kilobytes of information. For reference, a standard, modern, 3-minute MP3 takes up around 6 megabytes of space. That's one song, and it's more than 90 times the space on an SNS card. Now that's limiting. Despite this, however, composers found ways to save space and still create masterpieces. Even though this music doesn't appear in Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, I do want Final Fantasy to get some more exposure on this podcast. So let me play for you the opening theme from Final Fantasy VI, composed by longtime series composer Nobuo Uematsu. Despite the size limitations of the hardware, the soundtrack to this game is over three hours long. Obviously, in order to create something this massive, there had to be some ways of saving space on the cartridge. Samples as big as 32 kHz could be used on the SNES, but downsampling them could save a lot of space. Essentially, some sound quality would be lost for the payoff of the ability to include more samples, and this was noticeable for some samples more than others. While this wouldn't be an exact replica of how downsampling worked on the Super Nintendo, here's the sound of my voice at 44 kHz. Here's my voice again, at the Super Nintendo's 32 kHz. Now my voice is down to 22 kHz. This is how it sounds at 16 kHz. This sample is 11 kHz. And let's stop here at 8 kHz. Did you notice the loss of sound quality with each iteration? Another way to save space was to use small samples with loop points. Instead of loading a 5-second sample for those rare occurrences where a note would last that long, samples would typically be anywhere from 200 milliseconds to a full second, and then set the loop point for the last couple of milliseconds of that sample or less, often just the length of a single waveform. Let me show you an example. I'm going to play two samples. The first one is a 5-second sample of me playing the note D on my guitar. The second is that same sample, but only using the first 355 milliseconds, looping the last three milliseconds until it reaches five seconds. Have a listen. Here are some other features that were built into the console. The Super Nintendo had a Gaussian filter, which basically meant the highs and the lows wouldn't get out of control or clip. This was always active and couldn't be turned off. This works kind of like compression, which I use on this podcast quite frequently, because if I didn't and I talked to you from back here on my microphone, it wouldn't sound very good. Of course, I also set the gain in such a way that it won't clip, which by the way, sounds like this. The Gaussian filter helped keep such catastrophes from happening. It also had two different sound envelope technologies. One was ADSR, which stands for ATTACK, DECAY, SUSTAIN, and RELEASE. This one is fairly standard in the music industry. ATTACK is the start of a note, DECAY is the immediate fall off from the ATTACK, SUSTAIN is the held duration of the note, and RELEASE is the fall of SUSTAIN to silence after the note is released. The second sound envelope technology was called GAIN and had five settings to tweak. DIRECT, DECAY, EXPONENTIAL DECAY, INCREASE, and BENTLINE INCREASE. I'm not sure the specifics on these, but it allowed for a much more nuanced control of the sound. The Super Nintendo also had a noise generator that could be used on one or more of its sample channels with 32 preset white noise pitches. This is very similar to the NES in that it's the console that's generating this sound. A limitation of the noise channel though is that if it was used on multiple channels, you could still only have one pitch of noise playing at any given time, which didn't make it very practical to use twice. The console also had a built in system for echo and reverb. On the NES, composers emulated these effects in different ways, such as by repeating a note with less and less volume, but you didn't have to cut corners on the S NES. The echo effect played one more instance of the note and had 16 preset echo time lapses. The smallest echo interval was actually just at the same time as the original note, and each subsequent setting increased the space by 16 milliseconds, with longer echoes taking up more of your precious 64 kilobytes of space. Here's an example of each setting of the echo using that guitar note I sampled earlier. Reverb, which is basically how long it takes for a sound to die away, had more options, and at its maximum setting would play the sound infinitely. Probably not the most useful setting for that. The original Nintendo console had only three options for panning, left, right, or center. The Super Nintendo could set volume levels independently for both left and right, which allowed for many custom panning options. There are two more effects on the Super Nintendo that are worth mentioning briefly. Pitch modulation was a tool that could blend two sounds together, which is hard to make musical but could still make for some pretty sweet sound effects. Finally, the Super Nintendo had something called an FIR filter, which essentially mixed a signal with itself in different ways to produce an EQ effect, allowing for, say, all the lower frequencies of a sound to be cut out like a high-pass filter. We covered a lot of ground in this episode and learned a lot about the Super Nintendo. I want to give a big shout-out to Retro Game Audio Podcast, through whom I discovered a lot of this information. Give them a listen if you want more in-depth video game music knowledge. Throughout this episode, you've listened to several songs from the Super Nintendo that are also found in Smash Ultimate. However, let's close our episode with a song by David Wise, the legendary Donkey Kong Country composer. And see just how different this sounds than the rest of the music we've listened to. This is Aquatic Ambience. It's hard to believe this is made for the same console. How is it that someone could make something sound so different using the same technology? Well friends, you've just been clickbaited for next week's episode. We'll see you then. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have any comments or suggestions for a piece of music or a musical concept, you can contact me at overtonewarpzone at gmail.com. You can also find me on social media everywhere at OTWZ Podcast. Until next time, keep playing.